everybody, welcome. It is Gavin Syme. Welcome to the Pro Photography Podcast. It's episode 206 for Tuesday, September the 12th, 2023. And I think we need to talk about research. Welcome to the New Web Pro Photography Podcast, where we talk about what's new, what's old, and what works for professional and enthusiast photographers. Find show notes, videos, and more at simonfx.com slash podcast. Welcome, everybody. If you are tuning in live, I just decided to do this live on the channel because I want to improve our systems for getting guests on and doing roundtables and things like that. So if you're listening to this live, congratulations. Glad to have you guys here on the Pro Photography Podcast live. But if you are not, that's fine also. You're tuning into the podcast feed. That's actually where it kind of all goes in the end. That's what we're recording these for. I just like experimenting with different mediums. In fact, in the old days of the Pro Photo Show 1.0, we did we did uh, live roundtables in the earlier days of like YouTube group uh, live streaming. And we did those roundtables. And of course, the technologies have improved now. Tune into the podcast but, feed. Uh, I think That's actually where it kind of it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. And I think it'll be fun to do live. I do a lot of live broadcasting. I'm pretty comfortable with live streaming, but it does require me to be a little bit on top of it. I have the world. Good afternoon. Good to see those of you that are listening in the live stream and shout out to you as well who are listening afterwards in the podcast feed. But let's jump into the today's show because it's the same show no matter where you're listening and we have a few things to talk about today i actually want to talk about the resurgence a little bit of of all this analog stuff we're seeing but once again you guys know i'm always talking about shadows and shadow hacking by the way uh new shadow hackers workshop coming up over at simefx.com forward slash shadow hackers so check that out as well but this whole thing with analog is is getting interesting but i think the important thing and what we're going to touch on a little bit today as we talk about the resurgence is some technique stuff and i think why analog is relevant is because it kind of brings us back to basics and it helps improve our techniques and this is something that we also touch on in things like shadow hackers and in my other youtube videos and we'll talk about that a little bit today however let's actually get to some news and let's talk about the photo news nuggets because there's some interesting stuff going on some interesting new cameras happening and i am actually just going to get right into it now a lot of times i i look at these news bits and you know i follow sites that are really great at keeping the news out there like like petapixel like in gadget things like that i follow lots of youtube channels you got to watch youtube channels quite frankly because so many of these quote influencer channels are are really just paid ads and and i know we say you know technically when it's a paid ad they say Oh, this is a paid ad. Okay, then it's just a flat out ad. But I have a lot of YouTubers that I, I actually really enjoy and I, I hate it when a video is just an ad. Now, then you have the ones that are kind of in between and they, hey, they sent me this for free. Okay. Obviously, if you're a, if you're a YouTuber or something, you're not going to go buy everything. The problem with that is 
it does influence things. Now, back on the old Pro Photo Show, and this was the early days of all this, right? YouTubers, in the sense that they are now, weren't really a thing. Like, we had blogs, we had podcasts, there were YouTube videos, of course, but it wasn't like this celebrity YouTuber kind of thing. So companies, in in the early days, places like Adobe, when the new Photoshop suite would come out, I would I would get one in the mail, right? And then it was a code uh, and things like that. And eventually, they they cut all the journalists off and they gave us nothing for free, and we had to subscribe. And I remember getting little things, right? Companies software all the time. Obviously, like a software doesn't have really an inherent value, the physical article, right? Generally speaking, you're not going to resell it. So. Software, it's pretty much kind of the standard that you get software for review. But I remember at times they would send hardware and I would, I would just close that on, on the pro photo show. I would get like a lens baby kit or something like that. And I don't think we should make rules about it. I think it's really important to be transparent, but I've seen another level in this kind of influencer culture that is way more than what I remember. I didn't get sent free cameras and I was the host of the pro photo show. I had people reaching out to me a lot. You know, we weren't huge, but at the time it was a very relevant show. We didn't have these these influencers doing these hyper intense videos that cost them a hundred thousand dollars to produce right so obviously these companies now want to get in the hands of these influencers and they just send them stuff sometimes to keep sometimes to send back i'm always wary when something very expensive is sent to someone to keep so just be aware of your disclosures when you're watching reviews and news and stuff on all this stuff because you know that it's been a coordinated quote news effort when something, for example, like a new DJI drone comes out and all of the of the cool YouTubers on the exact same hour, the exact same moment, they're, they're launching this. And it's to the point where at some point we saw this recently with the Insta360 camera and this new Insta360 came out and literally all of these YouTubers, the Insta3 Go 360 Go 3, I think it was the Go 3. And it was kind of remarkable because you had Potato Jet and you had Jerry Rig Everything and you had iPhone and Peter McKinnon. And literally they all released these videos at the same time. And these are, I'm not, I'm not beating up on these guys. These, these are great content creators. But what really kind of struck me on this is it seems very staged. And I, I went through a few of these videos and it's almost like to be allowed into this pre-release group, whether they got to keep them or not, I don't know. It's almost like they had to follow a script. In fact, a lot of them times they'll say, this isn't a review. It's a first impressions, right? Usually what that seems to mean is they've had to agree to essentially a contract in order to get access. And basically, they can only say certain things and they have to follow a certain routine. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less. I actually was distinctively noticing this in the case of the Insta360 because it was so uh, distinctively identical, right? Um, they, they had each of these creators was doing their own version of this video, but it was all released at, at the same time in the same context and all had an affiliate link it was very it was very shady and so as we come into as we talk about photo news nuggets when i read photo news i'm just looking at kind of what's going on things that i've done recently gear that i've looked at that i'm watching and 
I think news has become a bit of a relative term. I'd like to know what you guys think about that. And by the way, if you're in live stream, feel free to drop a comment. But you can also, if you're listening after, wherever you're listening, go to Pro Photo Show, excuse me, Sim Effects, S-E-I-M Effects.com forward slash podcast. You can also get there directly from ProPhotoshow.com. It'll forward right to the page. And that's where you'll find the show notes for this episode. That's where you'll see any relevant images, links to videos. Uh, and if I'm talking about products, I'll put links to those in there. And if relevant, I will put uh, Amazon affiliate links on those products. Um, but rest assured that if there's ever a sponsorship or something like that, or even if someone's giving me gear to review or loaning me gear to review, I'm going to be very transparent about that. But I don't have a review in particular today. In fact, a lot of times if I'm doing a review, you'll see it more on the channel itself, on my Sime YouTube channel, which you can also get to from the site, from the podcast site. And you will see that, you know, if I do the annual Lightroom versus Capture One review, which has become pretty popular, um, spoiler alert, Lightroom is, is pretty much way ahead in every way in 2023 but check out that video if you haven't over on the channel and recently i've been doing this with more software doing these comparisons of of these different uh software tools because i really want to encourage competition sometimes people think that i'm a fanboy or something like that but that is actually not the case if you guys know me i've been criticizing adobe since way 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 back um, I'm not really a fanboy of any of these of these softwares, but I'll get accused of it. You know, one of my reviews that's become pretty popular is the review of Lightroom versus Luminar Neo, and Lightroom versus Luminar Neo. Again, it was it was no contest. Luminar Neo was pretty cool software, but its processing engine of how it handles highlights and things like that is not even close to Lightroom and Capture One. I mean, I, I honestly wouldn't. And I, I don't want to beat up on Luminar because they make some cool stuff and I want to encourage the competition, but I couldn't seriously edit with it, I guess is what I'm saying. I, I, you can get better results editing a photo on, in Lightroom Mobile, which is actually a phenomenal app uh, that blows Capture One's mobile app or really any mobile photo editing app that I know of out of the water. And you, in Luminar Neo on a desktop, the highlights, things like that, they, they struggled. The, the tools, it was really kind of for an amateur, like you have a lot of tools, but they don't all necessarily work well. And what I did see in Luminari's potential, I think if they refine their processing engine and stuff like that, and you look at something like Lightroom since Lightroom one, the way it handles noise and details and, and roll off of, of highlights and stuff like that, this stuff is really important if we're doing quality images, especially if you're shooting you know, high dynamic range scenes, you have highlights, things like that. And people that like these software, that like Capture One, they'll get upset at me. And they'll think I'm sponsored or I'm a fanboy. But obviously, I, I've been so critical of Adobe over the years. I mean, no one sponsors me because I'm always critical of, of everyone on this show. And I think that's that's how you need to be. I think it's important that we have a critical outlook when we're looking at things. Not that we be inherently negative. So I try to be fair to these softwares and tools and reviews, but there's a lot of competition. And if these, these products want to compete, they really have to keep the game high, as it were. But that said, I just wanted to give you kind of a few thoughts in relation to photo news. Let's jump in. I saw this, the, the Panasonic G9 II, and I will link to an article on this over on Engadget. 
Um, but this is six years since the Panasonic G9 come out. Still just a 25 megapixel sensor. So this is a debate, you know, that we can still have. It goes up to what, 25,600. And I've never been a huge fan of the Panasonic Lumix, Lumix cameras. Um, these are micro four thirds. So these are flagship micro four thirds. And I always felt like the micro four thirds sensors were a little bit too small. I had a few, I had a Panasonic Micro Four Thirds, one of the small interchangeable lenses cameras early on. In those days when we were really hunting, in the days when I had a PowerShot G9 and then I had a, a Lumix, I don't even remember what it was, but it was one of the early, uh, I think it was a Lumix Micro Four Thirds. And of course these have grown so that they're now essentially full-size mirrorless cameras. Not full-size because they're still compact. Um, I I tend to prefer the Fujis because they kind of spread the gap in the middle. They're very compact. They fit in the hand. They feel good. But they're that 1.6 crop sensor is actually still quite a bit bigger than a micro four-thirds sensor. And I feel like Fuji, the way they handle ergonomics and things like that. Now, Panasonic does have a lot of dedicated users in terms of of video. Um, now this G series is just now getting phase detect autofocus. And so you Panasonic users might be excited. I'm curious how many Panasonic users we have. It's a good looking camera and Panasonic does make nice looking stuff. I've just always had a little bit of a hard time getting excited with it. I feel like in the two sides, personally, I still have a Canon uh, 5D Mark II that I converted into infrared, but everything else now, I either have Sony full frame and I actually just have one right now. I sold my A7R Mark II to uh, to buy some other things. And I might get one of the newer A7R series, but I've actually thought about getting the, the Fuji X-T5 because it's now 40 megapixels. And I remember when the, the, the A7R Mark II came out in 2014, 15, was it? It was a huge deal. That, that was the sensor that got me to switch to mirrorless. Um, it was incredible, the resolution. It really upped my game in terms of printing large wall portraits. Because yes, if you're printing 50, 60 inches, you do want more than 25 megapixels. Having 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, I don't know where the line, because I've only, I only had up to 40. I didn't buy the new versions as they came out. I was happy with the 40. And 40 is arguably probably not quite in, in the range of a true medium format scan, you know, shot. Let's say you were shooting on, Ektar 100 on a, on a Hasselblad with a really good lens, shooting really well, processing, scanning really well, you're probably still resolving at closer to 70 or 80. I was getting well over 100, 150, pushing 200 megapixel scans on my 4x5s. But these were huge prints. They were, they're hard to work with uh, in terms of the negatives. So it's a very different thing, right? So when you talk sensor size, most people say megapixels are irrelevant. And as someone who teaches that we really need to get it right in camera, we need to study shadow light, you know, talking shadow hacking again, these things are relevant. There's kind of this right brain, left brain thing that goes on where both are important. Both are important because you can say megapixels are irrelevant. And so I can tell somebody, look, I can take my S23 Ultra. It's not the camera, it's the user, right? Give me your smartphone, give me your iPhone and I will do an amazing portrait session with it, regardless of the conditions, because I have experience. I know how to use the shadow. I know how to pose. I know where to put things. 
I know how to take control of my scene, right? So the technical aspect of, of the creative technical aspect is one thing. Then you have the technical aspect of dealing with shutter and aperture and, and zone system, like I teach in my exposed workshop and my other online workshops, my videos here on the channel. And you kind of put all that together. But what do the megapixels mean in all that? There's always been this push from kind of the left brain of megapixels don't matter. You know, your cell phone that has 12, the Fuji cameras for a long, long time now have had like 24. And just this year with like the X-T5, the X-H2, they've gone up to 40 megapixel, which is attractive to me. Do I, I don't really need to shoot 80 megapixels all the time. I'm already using lots of hard drive space, but would having the option to go to 40 megapixels and even on a on a crop sensor like the Fuji sensors, because they don't I don't use a Fuji when I used a, can, a Sony crop sensor, it felt like a crop sensor. I didn't feel kind of that freedom that I had with a full frame. Like it wasn't the same to me when I when I picked up Fuji for the first time and just the way they're designed, the way they're built, the way their entire system is built around the crop sensor, it felt native and organic. I didn't feel like, oh, I'm shooting with a small sensor. My images went great, right? On Sony, and this is where I think Fuji is really genius. Fuji doesn't make a full frame. They make a medium format. They skipped full frame altogether and they defend that position and I actually think they're right. Because when you introduce full frame, you now have this other set of lenses that are much bigger. And then people are like, oh, what, do I get the, the crop sensor lens or the full frame lens? There's this lens and I want that, but it's bigger. There's this lens on the crop sensor, but it's not going to work in full frame mode. And it kind of creates this chaos. Whereas when you have the compacts, right, I can take my X100, my X-T3, my X-E3, they, they, they just feel amazing. They, it feels like the X100 is like holding a classic rangefinder, like a Leica, the dials, the, the ergonomics, everything about it. It's not a Leica, but it's, it's, it's a poor man's Leica, right? When you pick up a Sony full frame, it's a great camera. It's like a computer with a camera in it, which the Fuji's like a camera that also has a computer. There's, there's a lot it can do. The focus does tend to be better, although it's been improving in the X-T4, the X-T5. Um, and then if you want to go crazy, in fact, that speaking of news, let's keep moving on here because we have Panasonic launched this G9 Mark II. Fuji actually just launched the GFX 100 Mark II. Eight frame per second, 8K video, 102 megapixel sensor. So if you want to go big or go home, I mean, you're right there on this and I'll link this in the notes. Um, but here's the thing, you get into these and now, yeah, you have to get these medium format lenses. Not that that's bad, right? There's a new, uh, 55 millimeter one seven. I mean, honestly, if I was doing a lot of landscape work and I had the budget for it, I would, I would go with this. And I've, t I've thought about dumping Sony full frame and going to a GFX series for my bigger cameras and then using my Fuji's. I don't know how I feel about being all in one brand. I kind of like being mixed brand. It, it kind of keeps me away from getting too dedicated to one brand because uh, I'm not doing Apple again with the way that they threw professional creators under the bus. You know, those of us who in the 2005, 2015 range kind of made Apple great again and supported them and bought products because they made good computers for creators. And then it became all about being fashionable and trendy, taking away all our ports, uh, making making constant pop-ups and, and an, oh, the operating system getting worse and worse. In my opinion, of course, you guys may disagree with this, but you know how I, I still have one MacBook Pro. I think it's like the 2018 edition or something that I use if I'm out and about. 
I don't plan to buy another. I don't love Windows, but when I open up that MacBook Pro now, it's const there's constantly a pop-up. Sign in to sign into uh, your Apple account. Sign into Apple Podcasts. Do this. Do that. Notifications all the time. I'm like, this is ridiculous. This is worse than than Windows than than Windows 10 was. And so I gradually just moved away even on my phones as well from Apple because the Samsung and other phones, the, the Android operating system in, in the, these other flagship phones got to be essentially the same. I didn't have, when I switched from iPhone, I switched from iPhone at the iPhone 10 and went to a, a Galaxy S10. It wasn't a big speed bump. The apps were there, everything transferred over seamlessly. Like it, it really wasn't difficult like I was afraid it would be. There was a few apps and things like that that were ISO only, iOS only, but no app at this point that's taken seriously, uh, is, is likely to be only on Apple. Um, which is why you see, uh, things like, like Capture One's mobile app that I believe still is only on Apple as, as of earlier this year. It really is getting no attention. Sure, there's a few news releases and people talk about it, but Lightroom's mobile app, which is on iOS, it's on Android, you can use that exact same app on the desktop cloud version of Lightroom. You can sync it up over to Lightroom Classic. So there's actually a video on the channel of, of Lightroom Classic versus Cloud. Uh, versus mobile, just to kind of show the differences and how they all sync together. And so I will, I will put that in the show notes as well over at simefx.com slash podcast. Fuji GFX2. I haven't watched one of the videos of it yet. Um, this, this is just coming out like today, yesterday that this is coming out, but this is a mirrorless medium format. Um, true medium format. <laughs> they call these medium format because they're larger than full frame. But 43 by 54, these aren't as big as like old school six by seven or even like Hasselblad. And speaking of that, I'm actually going to talk about that in our resurgence part of the show once we finish up with the news, because I think the format of these sensors is something we need to address. And we'll come back to that. Another thing that I've actually been watching some videos on and looking at is this new Polaroid i2. Polaroid's trying to come back to instant cameras. Now, this goes along with today's topic. And that is that this kind of analog resurgence and how it affects even our digital photography, because it does. It absolutely does. You know, I'm making products all the time, like my Filmus presets. I invest a huge amount of time in getting those analog looks right. And so they're an analog inspired look. So let's say I go for an Ektar look or, or Portra or Ektar 100 is one of my favorites and Portra 400 in the Filmist collection. But some of them I give away free. You can actually go to simefx.com slash Filmist and there's a free pack that I, thousands of people download because I have a free classic negative preset in there. There's a, one of my free portraits. There's a free portrait 160 preset in it. And it's just kind of a, a get started uh, sampler. And so if you haven't picked up my free sampler of film, check it out. And of course, the, the stuff I make on my site is what keeps the podcast and all my videos going. So if you see something you like and want to support it over there, uh, if, if you want to get presets or actions or something like that, that are not just cranked out, you know, one new pack every week by internet marketers and they're actually refined and built, check that out. That'll, that'll be my ad for this week. Um, but, uh, the, analog effect. I, I, I was, I used to kind of be in the camp that these analog things were kind of just a hipster fad. And I know they do cross over into kind of the hipster fad territory, especially when you get into Polaroids because they're so low fi they're such low quality most of the time that 
it's like, what's the point? We're going to come back to that in a second. What is the point of the Polaroid or the Instax, right? Is it relevant? I think it is. But what I found is you take things like like film presets. People are like, oh no, I don't need to try. I'm not trying to copy the film look, right? I'm not a hipster. It does, that's not actually the point. Filmist for my own work, and I make a lot of preset packs like silver, like natural HDR, like PowerFlow. I, I was, as far as I know, I was the first guy there. This was back in 2007, or was it 2009? I don't remember. I think I, I was I was the first commercially available preset pack that I know of in the industry. And that was back in the Pro Photo Show one days. And ever since then, I've been kind of refining, refining, and I get really fanatical about doing these, right? I mean, Filmist has probably seen 15, 10 or 15 free updates since it launched almost five years ago. And I just send these out to people that own my Filmist product. But it's a go-to pack for me, not because I'm trying to be a hipster, not because I want someone to look at those photos. It's not like my user, I don't want it to look like an effect, right? So when somebody sees that photo, I might hashtag it with with the film look that I was going for, right? But it's not like if I print that photo, someone is going to look at that and they're going to say, oh, you know, that looks like, you know, you're trying to do a film look. No, it's it's actually not like that at all. In fact, go to go look at some of the samples of the Filmist page. And if you look at something like Portra 400, what it actually did when I really started deeply studying these, you take a Portra 400 here, like of that portrait of Sandra that's over on the Filmist page. And you can see how I have this sunset scene with these very sharp specular highlights, a little bit harsh. And when you put a Portra 400 to that, it just gets this perfect roll off of the highlights, this perfect kind of feel, the glow of the warmth. And it's you could say, okay, well, you can do that with any look. That's true. But what happened with digital, and I've talked about this recently, if you go to the recent videos on the channel, is that we're overdriving, right? This goes back to my video, and I will link it, that uh, is called Stop Using Contrast. And the, the idea of this is that contrast, and this goes back to the shadow hacking theory that I teach in Shadow Hackers, um, is that you, you need to stop thinking that this contrast and shadow is a slider. It's, it's not. It's all about the nuance. And what happened with these sliders, and it's the same with saturation, with the way we use color, um, with the way we use curves. If you've seen how I do the F curve, there's a video on my channel about the F curve as well. I always mention videos, but I kind of have a video about everything because I've been really ramping up uh, the YouTube over the past few years to have more visual content for when you guys need tutorials and stuff like that. The F curve is kind of that film with light curve. But that was actually inspired, that variant of a curve was actually inspired by the work I'm always doing on Filmist presets. And so, yes, I'm trying to get a color formula that looks right, but in doing that, you get a process that's not overcooked, that has color that's very organic. And so when you come back to that kind of film look, it makes you think. We'll talk about this more, but I, I know we're still in news, but I wanted to throw this out there in terms of this Polaroid i2, because the Polaroid i2 is actually, and I've showed you guys this on the channel, it's the, the best Polaroid camera you could get up to now is this right here. And I've, I've put this in the show notes. It is a Polaroid SX-70. This is an original 1970s. It's the only, uh, I believe there was one other Polaroid SLR after this. But this is 
the ultimate Polaroid, but it's SX70. To shoot 600 film on it, you have to do a conversion on it. It is autofocus. It was the first ever autofocus camera. This is actually a sonar autofocus module. I mean, this was unbelievable technology for the 70s. Like, this stuff didn't exist. And so this camera, and it all still works beautifully 50 years later, and it's in near flawless condition. I'll put a photo of this in the show notes for those that are on the audio podcast here. But this thing, I mean, it just, it's its almost like holding a Hasselblad. I, I'm, I'm really glad I found this. And I use it. I use it. And Polaroid came out with the i2, which is basically their answer to Polaroid hasn't made a high-end camera in ages. This is a $600 Polaroid camera. It has supposedly a better lens, but it's still plastic. The old SX70 is glass lens. It's an SLR. This new one is a rangefinder, not an SLR. But the unique thing about it that even doesn't exist in the SX70 is you can take this thing, this $600 Polaroid, and it's cool. It actually really is cool if you like Polaroids because it has full manual, which is non-existent in a Polaroid, right? Full aperture, uh, not just manual settings through an app, like some of Polaroid's recent like Go cameras and things like that, but it has full manual in camera, aperture priority, all that kind of stuff. A um, lot of limitations though, one 250th of a second max, which is kind of dumb, honestly, in 2023. Um, but it can use, it can use all the Polaroid, SX70, SX600, and the new iType Polaroid will all run in this in the same camera. So that alone is really cool. Now, I go out with my SX70. I usually put black and white film in the SX70 because when you shoot that, I feel like you actually get kind of a... Do I have one here? These are Instaxes. Um, when you shoot black and white in an SX70, you get this very almost almost a almost a wet plate kind of look right like a little square wet plate and so they have this very nice kind of feel to them and they feel like a proper black and white they're they're very easy to screw up shutter speeds because the iso is only 160 on the sx70 so they're very easy to screw up you really got to take your time and you have good light the color polaroid films they tend to have that kind of fady hipster Polaroid look. And they're fun, but I feel like black and white gives me better results. I don't use the color Polaroid that much because it, let's be honest, it kind of has junky color. Whereas in black and white, having a little bit of that vintage kind of wet look that you get, like if you look at an old uh, wet plate image or something like that, it works. I'm not saying that it's bad to use Polaroid color. You can get some cool things on it, but it definitely kind of has this faded lo-fi hipstery look If if I'm... Is that is that a fair way to put it? I don't know. Um, greetings, Singapore, in the chat. Good to have you guys here in the live stream. Uh, Steven says, there should be plenty of megapixels for full frame to do almost everything you need rather than 100 plus megapixels, which brings its own issues. Um, processing power. I think for most people, and we're kind of mixing the news up here with the commentary, right? Uh, you know, on the one end, we have super lo-fi, low dynamic range, uh, not really able to print large Polaroid I-type camera coming out. And I do think it's cool. My biggest criticism of this is the plastic lens. I consider that to be inexcusable. People say, oh, no, this is like acrylics. This is modern. No, 
I don't want a plastic lens. I want I don't want a lens that I risk getting a chemical on and it screws it up. I want a real proper glass lens. If the SX70, which I can still buy, has a glass lens, there's no excuse for a $600 Polaroid not having a glass lens. It's just a cop-out Polaroid. So fix it on the version 2, and I might really be interested. Um, I guess technically this is the i2, so this is the version 2, but this is kind of... Uh, the version one of really being premium, fully manual, all that. The other inexcusable failing of this camera is it's not a replaceable battery. Now, this is a beautiful thing about using a 600 camera or an SX70. There's no battery in this. There's nothing to electrical. Uh, there's electrical, but there's not a lot of failure points in this. So this thing's 50 years old. I put a pack of Polaroid SX70 and Polaroid the, the Polaroid 600 and SX70 packs, you know, the batteries built into the bottom. They power themselves. It works beautifully. This Polaroid i2, even if you're you're going to have to have, it's not powered by the film pack, right? You can charge it through USB-C and all that. That's great. But it's a non-replaceable battery in this. So while my SX70 is 50 years old and still beautiful, this Polaroid i2 will be a paperweight within about 10 years because that's all the, about all the longer the lithium battery in it is going to last. Now, that doesn't mean, no doubt, yes, I get it. People will open it up and you'll be, they'll, but somebody will sell a battery probably, and it's probably not going to be that difficult, but we don't know yet. I haven't seen a teardown of this yet. Who knows how they constructed it? There's no excuse for something like this, not having a user-replaceable user battery, but there's really no excuse for our cell phones not having user-replaceable batteries. You guys remember the early 2000s, cell phones, cameras, literally everything was a user-replaceable battery. Like you pushed a button and slid it off. Even if it's not that easy now because they're trying to make them compact, water-resistant, all that, there's no reason for these devices that we're seeing now to be throwaway, to be as non-repairable as they are. And we're finally starting to see consumer rights laws coming out and saying, no, it's not okay, because you have these companies like Samsung, like Apple, like car makers, right? Like BMW, they want you to subscribe to everything. They want you to pay extra for everything. They don't want to allow you to fix things like Tesla. And this the constant assault on our right to buy something and have it be ours, guys, it has to stop. We have to stand up and say no more because there's always these excuses. It's for public safety. It's for this. It's for that. Farmers not being able to fix tractors. We need to be able to fix things. We need to be able to put batteries in Polaroid. We're not going back. We're tired of this and we're going forward. And, and yeah, people are going to call you out on it and justly so because you need to design your products. If I'm paying you $600 for a Polaroid camera, I expect that 50 years from now, it's going to be working beautifully, just like this original SX-70. That's what I want to see, Polaroid. And I'm not going to let you slide on this, because stuff like this, this, this planned obsolescence of stuff isn't okay. It's not okay. But I do really appreciate a lot of the things they've done in the Polaroid I too. Okay, before we wrap up and go into our main topic of the day, I do just want to talk briefly about Steven's comment in terms of megapixels from full frame. Look, I've shot large format all the way up to 4x5. I, if, if you take an actual Polaroid, black and white, that's kind of why I love it. It's like shooting a medium format. It's a little bigger than a Hassi medium format negative would be, but you get a different aesthetic. A uh, crop sensor from a Fuji is great. It's portable. You could say the same for a Micro Four Thirds from, from a Panasonic or something like that. And... Then you say, okay, 
there's plenty of megapixels, megapixels from full frame. Pr plenty is relative, but yes, for most people, you don't need an 80 megapixel photo for every photo you're taking of a wedding or a portrait session or something like that. Realistically, if you're printing, when you're talking 40, 50, 60 megapixels, if you're printing 50 inch prints, which we should be doing, we inherited this profession from the painters and we should be doing beautiful wall art. It matters. Those megapixels do matter. And you will see a difference when you go to a larger sensor just because of the, the aesthetic, because of the focal plane size. It actually does change because you're getting different focal lengths on your lenses. So don't think it's simply a matter of megapixels. You don't, you don't pick up a medium format Fuji GFX 100 Mark II simply because you say I want 100 megapixels. Because the A7R Mark, is it 4 or 5 now, is 80 or is it 100 now? So they're, they're almost there in the same range. In terms of basic detail, you're going to get very close. And that's why I didn't go to like a Pentex 645 medium format back in the day when I bought my A7R Mark II, because the full frame 40 megapixel sensor of the day was really right in there with the closest price medium format, which I believe was the Pentex 645 at the time, which is a 50 megapixel, it, 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 the image quality from the Sony was was almost identical, maybe not quite, and but it was a lot more versatile of a camera. And so you could say the same, but what Fuji's doing is they're taking that nice rangefinder, not super big style, and they're saying, hey, we're skipping full frame. Our full frame is medium format. And that's actually a great idea because it's not crazy over the top, huge, clunky full frame like medium format, like like some of the medium formats have been over the years that are basically just created for studio photography. You can do video on this thing. You can do high frame rates on this thing. I mean, they've really come a long ways. So you you have crop sensors, full frame sensors, which are 35 millimeter equivalent. And then you have these medium formats. But just understand that it's not only about megapixels. I can shoot 100 megapixels on my S21 Ultra. Do I? No. Not very often, unless I'm just playing around. Because that 100 megapixel sensor is still not very big. And what it's really using it for is pixel binning to, say, shoot at 100 and then pixel bin it down, combining those pixels down to a 24 megapixel photo and or a 12 megapixel photo and getting less noise out of this tiny sensor. But when you shoot 100 megapixels at a full frame like the GFX, you don't you don't ha you're not using a tiny sensor, right? Excuse me, a medium format like the GFX. You're getting this big sensor and big mega megapixels and it is going to give you a different look, not just because of the resolution, but because of the size of the sensor, the lenses. It's just like shooting on a medium format or a 4x5 or large format an 8x10, you get a completely different look. And that's part of the creative aspect of these. Speaking of sensors and moving into our topic, finally, last bit of news, the GoPro Hero 12 Black. Um, not, not very exciting. And also the DJI Action 4 came out this month. And these action cameras are now competing head-to-head. -head. Yep, GoPros are still there. You know, they have screens on the front now, so you can do selfies. They're good enough that you can do photos with them, 24-megapixel photos. You know, use them as a, kind of an all-in-one for family trips, things like that. The photos aren't great out of them, although I believe this new one now does have RAW. It finally has a tripod mount. GoPro's finally catching up with the fact that we don't always want to buy your accessories. They're going to obsolete themselves when you change your mount. These are good action cams, but it's not really that different than the 11 Black. It's not really that different than the 12 before. They have great stabilization. If you need an action cam, they're great. And at that point, you're probably going to be looking at this or the Osmo 4 
and watch some videos and compare those two because even among people doing these, there's not that many exciting changes. They release these new product videos and they talk about all these new features, but most of those new features are just slight variants of the same new features that came out last year. I was just talking to someone about this problem of cameras now releasing every year, right? GoPros, phones releasing every year. And this, this urgency for, for shareholders that, you know, there's a new camera every year. We sell, there's base, there's a new GoPro every year. You don't need a new GoPro every year. They're just not innovating. The, the technology isn't changing that fast. Just like you don't need a new Fuji X100 every year. Now, bigger cameras, they still have release cycles of four or five years. And usually when a new one comes out, Sometimes they're incremental, but a lot of times there's some substantially useful features. Radically better image stabilization, you know, the, the X-T4 to the X-T5 in the Fuji line. I still have an X-T3. It works great, but the focus has improved in the X-T4. And then in the X-T5, they put a brand new sensor that's 40 megapixels. Pretty big leap forward, right? And it's the same with like these DGIs and all this stuff. So on Pro Gear, we tend to have this release cycle of three, four, five, six, seven years. Although it still seems like there's constantly new cameras coming out because what they've done to have a constant release cycle like Sony is they just keep introducing new cameras. There's so many cameras you can barely keep track of them now. Frankly, they're just making too many, right? And so you have all these variants of all these cameras when they could have a simplified line. But what they want is to be in the news, right? They want there to always be a new camera a few times a year. So they're getting those, those YouTube reviewers. They're getting that influencer impact especially a company like Sony, they're experts at this because, of course, they're in a lot of, of markets. But you see this the same with GoPro. Every year, a new camera, every year, a new camera. Well, it's it's not really that different. It's the same with phones, right? They just announced today the new iPhone 15. Uh, sure, there's some new stuff. I don't use iPhones anymore, but I actually watched it just to see what's new. Nothing terribly innovative, to be honest. Some new features that people are like, ooh, that's nice. But really, it's the same phone with some new blame, with some slightly improved cameras. I usually buy a new smartphone because I want a phone, I buy my smartphone for my camera, right? Every two, maybe three years. Because in the, the every year release, the cameras don't change. They really only do a, a new sensor or a major new update on the camera or real improvement that's noticeable every couple of years. And really, for most people, you don't even need to do that, right? I'm doing a lot of videos on my phones. I don't really need a GoPro because I'm going to get just as good of results and way better photos actually zoom lenses 10x zoom on the samsung that's actually pretty good would i go out and shoot a portrait session with it no but i could shoot some pretty dang good portraits on the regular lens of that samsung or of an iphone right so where's the market for these action cams i think if you're actively doing action stuff right you want a rugged camera if you're doing cycling you're doing i do paragliding i haven't been able to do much of it lately because i've been busy and working but you know, you're doing some sports or fishing or something like that. I think something like a GoPro or a DJI is great for that. But I think that for most of us, our, our phones are, are good enough. One thing that did stand out to me, though, on this GoPro that I want to mention, and I think they're doing something really good here. And if, if there's, I, I don't know if last year's model had this, um, but I was watching the Petapixel review on this, and I'll, I'll link to, to that as well of this Hero 12. This is a 5.3K sensor, right? So you, you can do more than 4K and you have some crop space, you have space for their super steady modes and things like that. But you know what really stands out is the sensor is almost square. It's just a little bit wider than square, but it's almost a one-to-one -one sensor. This is what I really want to see. And let's come into our main topic for the day. And that is 
the resurgence, the resurgence of analog and how it affects us. Not that you need to shoot analog and not that you need to switch to film. You know, it's fun to shoot from film, but I'm, I'm not making, I talk about shooting film on here and doing film profiles and presets and all this stuff because there's a lot to be learned from analog. But just like vinyl records have become popular again, it doesn't mean that we don't listen to music on our phones. It's not to replace it. But on this analog topic, what caught my eye on this Hero 12 that we just did in the news segment is that it's a square sensor. Now, I have a Hasselblad 500 series, and the film's expensive. I don't shoot it that much. But that square format, right? Instagram didn't invent the square format. Hasselblad had it long before. What we really need to see, what would really be a generational improvement for these cameras is to switch them to square sensors. That's what I want to see. Because we're shooting video on these cameras. So this is something we can take from analog like the Hasselblad. Uh, these, these 16 cameras didn't shoot these really wide formats, right? That came along with cameras that were trying to cater to video. So on video here on, you know, if I'm shooting here on the channel, it's 16.9. Uh, sometimes if you want to do something cinematic, it's, it's even more, right? So you shoot video and you want a more wider screen view because it gives you kind of this wide, your eyes take it in cinematic view. But then when you shoot portraits, you're going the opposite way. So if you have a camera that's 16.9, cropping it to do a portrait, you know, then, okay, 16.9 for YouTube worked great. Square for Instagram. Then they introduced these TikTok type stories. And don't get me started on how those are, are dumbing down our society because all the only attention span we have is if we can be entertained within three seconds. Um, but that's another topic. But now it's vertical video. And so you have to like, balance. Oh, I want to post this to my YouTube channel. You know how often I go out and I'm just taking B-roll down here in Mexico and I can do phenomenal B-roll even at night on my smartphone. So I rarely care just carry just a B-roll camera and I'm able to shoot B-roll all the time and I just collect it up. I tag it. I store it. And then when I'm doing videos here on the channel, just like I do B-roll if I'm doing a fashion session or something like that, then when I do videos, I can show you guys context, right? I'll do, I'll do B-roll of me taking a cool street photo because I want to show it on a video. And also in the world of AI, when everything is fake, I want to show you guys that, hey, this was a real thing. Here's what, here's what I saw. Here's my final image, right? But do you know how often I'm shooting a vertical? Okay, here's a vertical for my next YouTube video. Oh, I better shoot horizontal as well. Vertical, so I can do a quick story, horizontal. And then later I'm editing, I'm like, don't I have a horizontal of this? Don't I have a vertical? Oh, I don't have, I only shot this in a vertical. It's so annoying. It's so annoying. In phones and in pro cameras, this is the first thing that I want to see from this analog resurgence. I want us to be reminded of how convenient it was and to take a cue from those Hasselblad square negatives. There's no reason we shouldn't have square sensors. Some people say, oh, we should have round sensors and cameras. That's going to be a difficult manufacturing thing and things like that. But if you think about a camera, a digital camera, the lenses are round. You don't have to have a new lens set if you put a square sensor in, right? These lenses, the dimensions, they're already able to handle the width dimension of the sensor. All you got to do is make it a little taller. It probably wouldn't even make the cameras that much bigger, right? Because if, if you take, if you take a camera, where is my, well, I, I'm not going to go get the camera right now, but you guys can do it on yours. Oh, take your lens off and just look. 
And you can see that obviously the sensor takes up more space width-wise and there's more space on the top. It would certainly take some restructuring, but you know how much I would love to see like a, a Fuji X-T6 with a square sensor, a Sony A7R or an A7 with a square sensor. Think about this because now you could choose, I'm going to shoot, I'm going to shoot in vertical mode, horizontal mode, or I'm going to shoot the whole sensor. So your sensor at this point gets bigger. Now this is really relevant for video, but this could be great in photos too. This is one of the reasons that people loved Hassies because they would shoot a wedding and there was no like flipping all the time to be square, to be horizontal. They just shoot it and you'd either use it square or you would crop it to a horizontal or a vertical, whatever you needed, because that square format is so versatile. And so if you have a square sensor, you no longer have to worry about aspect ratio. And we're starting to see this on things like, like the Hero, where you can shoot vertical or horizontal, but you don't have to turn the camera. You just switch the way it's cropped. Or if you can shoot the full sensor, you can decide later. Or you can, if you're shooting raw, let's say, you could say, I'm shooting horizontal in raw. All right. But if you're shooting raw, you're still getting the full photo. So when you open it up in Lightroom, it might show up as cropped, but if you, but the whole photo is still there, you can then readjust that crop. And this is already, this technology already exists. We can already do this within camera crops, within camera color profiles, right? You can shoot a color profile on a camera like my Fuji and you open it up in camera in Lightroom or Capture One and it has a color profile installed. Now I always take it off and put the preset version on it because if I'm like, it's, it's going to give me more control. I'm not going to rely on the color profile unless it's just for a quick upload or a quick print or something like that. So my point is not that color profiles have changed everything. It's that Lightroom, Capture One, et cetera, they can read this raw file, Camera Raw can read the raw file and say, oh, here's the settings that are bit, that are that are unnoted in there. Here's the crop of it. But it's not, it's still the raw file, which means you could you could have a button on the back of your Sony or your Canon that just quickly switches you from vertical mode to horizontal mode with no need to switch the camera vertical. Do you know how much hassle it is to always switch back and forth? It would actually give us an immense amount of creativity, even when I'm doing like a, a, a fashion session. A portrait session, I have to be thinking, oh, I need some verticals because I'm going to need some, you know, to show in this context. Um, I need some more. No, I want horizontals. I like the horizontal. This looks great. Oh, but I better try and do a vertical of this because I want something that looks good on Instagram. I want something that'll print in this context. It's a pain. And I think the next big leap in cameras that I would be all over is square sensors. If anybody can, you know, tell me in the comments what you think. Go over to signoffix.com slash podcast and tell me what you think. And this is the first part. So when I say the analog resurgence, which is our main topic for today, and we have the resurgence of analog, I think there's a, there's a YouTube channel that's always doing analog camera reviews and stuff like that called analog resurgence. That's not what I'm referring to here, but they make good videos. What I'm talking about is the resurgence of analog being cool, right? I was there when Photoshop became the cool thing in the early 2000s. And at that point, like, oh, all the analog stuff, all the darkroom stuff, that wasn't fun anymore. We're all Photoshop users. And some of the images that were winning international level awards by today's standards were laughable. They were these weird, cheesy layering effects, these bad composites, but it was all new, right? It was all exciting. That was the new thing. Now that the dust has settled and years have passed and we're realizing, oh yeah, we have all these digital tools, they're great, but we're overdoing it so much. This goes back to my stop using the contrast slider video that I did a few weeks ago on the channel. 
overdoing it so much. This goes back to the topic that I talked about in relation to the Polaroid with how I make film presets and how actually those have changed how I edit and the way I shoot because they've toned me back down. They remind me, hey, we had a hundred plus years of film and negatives and refinement of color science and all this technology. And then digital cameras came out and we just kind of went hog wild on the sliders and HDR, over the top HDR. And you all, you guys all know the nasty HDR. Like that is the epitome of just going too far. The HDR that just crushed everything into the mid-tones and then turned up the clarity and called it like, you know, it said it was a style, but HDR isn't a style. HDR is about dynamic range, which is something I've, I teach in my workshops. But actually, you know what? I just did a video. I'll link it in the show notes. It's always right there with those videos, guys. I try to keep them in my head. This week's video was how to stop doing HDR wrong, that we've been thinking about HDR when we've been taught HDR wrong. Film was HDR. We have more sliders and things like that now to control it, but it's about dynamic range. I won't go into that here because it'll it'll go long, but I did make a pretty condensed like 15-minute video on the channel to explain basically everything you need to know about dynamic range and HDR, as well as how that relates to the zone system and the fact that there's 11 stops. I think I accidentally said 10 stops in the video because it's 0 to 10, but technically if you start at 0, that's 11. How does that relate to dynamic range on our sensors? All this kind of stuff about HDR is in that video. So I'll link that in the show notes. But I've actually learned a lot. And I told you guys years ago when I started shooting 4x5 film, right? I was going back. That was before the analog resurgence. Before it was super cool to shoot analog. It was starting to get cool to shoot analog, right? This was like 2011, 12 range when when I got the, the 4x5 Linhoff from Ken Whitmire. And I, I learned a lot because I had to slow down. I had to think about it. I processed my own film. I had a Jobo, all this kind of stuff, right? And so now with film so expensive and over the top, this analog resurgence has made film outrageous. So the analog resurgence isn't always about buying a film camera. I've been shooting 35 lately to do film tests. I have a, a Canon, Canon QL17 G3 here. I have a roll of Portra 800 in this right now for street photography. And in my SRT202, my Minolta, Great camera because I can use the same vintage lenses that I'm putting on my Fuji. I have a roll of, I think, gold 400 in this right now that I'm testing. Um, but the cool thing with this analog resurgence is people are restoring these old lenses like crazy. You can get them. The prices are going up, but they're obviously still way cheaper than buying a new L lens, right? So you can get like an old rocker lens, the, the rocker, Minolta rocker series. We don't think a lot about Minolta cameras anymore, but they were the big dog, right? The SRT series in the 70s, this was like the, the most advanced camera you could buy. And it's a brick. It's heavy. It feels amazing in my hand. It's a phenomenal camera. Still works all these years later, just like my SX-70. I like things that are made to last. But the lenses on this, regardless of whether you want to shoot any film, which now costs $30 a roll, the analog resurgence has made those lenses more available because more people are cleaning them, restoring them. There's videos about them. There's, you know, you can fix them. You can buy them. There's adapters for all of them. So I can literally go out shooting, thanks to this analog resurgence, with a roll of film in my Minolta SRT on a, on a portrait session, have some film fun, but in, I can switch the lens over and have the exact same lens on my Fuji X-T3. Now, for me, this is great for testing to make film profiles, but just for shooting in general, it's a great way to inspire yourself and be able to say like, oh, let's try this here and let's try it there. Let's get a little film, but also I can use my same lens on my Fuji, manual focus, of course, 
But you see what I'm getting at. When I talk about the analog resurgence or the resurgence of analog, it's more like the resurgence of vinyl records. They're cool. They're iconic. They have great quality. That analog sound, there's something magical about it. But it doesn't mean that we don't listen to music in our car from our phones, even if you're into vinyl. And yet there's something to be learned from it. There's something to be gained from it. We can all gain, even as digital shooters, because these were all, these lenses on these cameras, I've said this a lot, these lenses on these old cameras, they were all made for SLRs, which means with an adapter, because the flanges were further out than they are on mirrorless, you can adapt these old vintage lenses, which millions of them were made across different brands. You can adapt them to almost any mirrorless camera. I have a ton of 50 mils, but probably the Rocker and the Fuji Non 514s are my favorite. Um, analog can teach us a lot. Yes, on a practical sense, there is something magical about shooting film. It makes you slow down. It makes you value each frame and you will get more out of each frame. Anybody that goes out and shoots film, um, if, if you're brand new, I don't know if it's the best thing to do. You might get frustrated because it's harder and you don't want to be wasting that film. It's expensive. But if, but if you're feeling good about your photography and you want some ways to get your creativity flowing, I think picking up an old film camera is great. But when you pick up that old film camera and the lenses that go with it, figure out what adapters you need to also put them on your digital mirrorless camera because you can use them on both. So this digital resurgence gives back, but also it reminds us there's a lot to be learned. We, digitals has been, has been king now for only 15 years. Think about that. Film, first it was the painters, then it was cameras, then it was cameras really dominating everything, had a hundred years of documenting the world. And then digital came out, it only has barely a decade and a half Obviously, digital cameras existed before then, but I'm talking about when they really became mainstream. They came out on our phones. We were using them as professionals. My first was the Canon 10D, I believe, is when I first really switched from film. It must have been 2005, 2006. And so while the digital's come a long way, it's actually still a baby and compared to analog. And now that we're kind of over this, oh, we're so new, we're so cool, we have sliders, we can get back to, hey, film actually had some pretty cool stuff going on. Analog actually is important and there's stuff that we can learn from it. Just like you learn when you use film presets. If you do nothing else for your digital photography this month, go download the free film presets that are on my site on the Filmist page at simfx.com. I'll link them in the show notes. Obviously, I sell the full pack and I value those of you that buy that and support my work. And, but if nothing else, just try those, like the portrait preset in that. And at first you might be like, oh, it's a little fady feeling. No, it's not a fady feeling. It's that we've gotten so used to overdriving all of our sliders and they don't age well. You go back, I go back to these photos that I overdrove from 10 years ago and I'm like, oh man, with a, you don't go back to a film photo and be like, oh, that's really overcooked. I really overdid that. No, because it has natural colors. They vary from each film stock and as such each film preset, etc. The colors vary, but they have an organic feel to them. They have a feel that's reminiscent of real life. And especially as we're coming in now to an AI world where everything is more and more artificial and faked and we can't believe anything, I think we're going to see more and more value of natural organic things that represent life. doesn't mean the AI is not going to take over the world. We don't know what's coming there, okay? But it does mean that in terms of like a portrait, for example, a memory, when you look back in 20 years, you don't want all your memories to have been artificialized by AI. 
you want the photos of your kids, the colors, the tones, the backgrounds, you want it to be real. Real is relative. All of our eyes see differently too. Just like we would select Ektar for one look and Portra for another look. It was like the equivalent of choosing your preset or your action, your filter in, in the film days. Now we can do that quickly. But I will say that I go to film presets when I'm editing digital first. And yes, I'll go to something like my HD, you know, natural HDR pack. If I'm doing black and white, I'll go to silver because it has more black and white options. There's, there's lots of tools that I make. I have my gold chrome and my street pack that I make that are each kind of dedicated for their thing. And I'll go to those. But if I'm doing a batch of photos, I'll quickly go to something like Portra 400 or like Ektar because it gives me this great foundation. It's, I know it's always going to look good. And it's not always going to look good like, oh, it's straight out of camera, look good. I've changed nothing. It changes something when we, when we shoot film and when we edit with film like looks. I also know when I edit with a film look, I need, the, I, I'm going to use, I'm going to go to the preset because I, I could spend an hour trying to dial it in, still not get that look right because the film looks are so precise. They just nail it. And so I have to work my ass off to get the colors and stuff right. It's actually very difficult to try and replicate those. I would never try and do that manually with every photo, but once it's there and once you got it, ooh, does it work? And so I'm still learning from analog. And that's why I'm actually shooting more 35 because it's more accessible and I can try the films that still exist and be doing side by side testing and things like that because there's a lot still to be learned from analog. And like I said in this, even going to this new GoPro action camera, which you would think has nothing to do with analog, but yeah, actually the square sensor is a very analog inspired thing. And I hope we, we go back to that. Sorry, I got it. For those of you that are watching the video stream, I just got an itch. I'm trying to keep going, but also like, what is going on? Um, anyways, I think that kind of covers it. Yes, film makes you slow down. Yes, it makes you think. It makes you see shadow better. This is something we talk about distinctly in Shadow Hackers, where we use shadow better when we use film because we didn't have a shadow lift slider that we could just push it up and push it up. We didn't have a, a highlight slider to pull it down. We weren't using curves. And so what happens, it's so easy to crush everything into midtones like we do with the overcooked HDR that I talked about in this week's video. But if you make it to the next uh, Shadow Hackers class over at simefx.com slash Shadow Hackers, I'm still doing free classes. I try to do one every, every few weeks. These are only live. They're not available for replay because these are an actual workshop and it will change the way you take photos. So definitely check that out if you want more kind of on this whole theme of shadows and shadow hacking. But I bring up analog a lot, not because I'm a hipster that, you know, it's like, oh, it's all about film. No, it's not. I shoot more digital than I shoot film, but I improve my digital by studying analog in general, shooting film, and just studying film and studying what we did in the past. Just like I improve my composition and my color and my shadows by studying the painters from before photography even existed. These things matter. That was very analog, even more analog. Maybe they're equally analog using a paintbrush. But I would actually, when we say analog, we mean film, right? But I would actually extend that in terms of photography to the, the painters and, and the engraved plates that they made early prints with, things like that, because we inherited the craft of photography from them. And I actually think that it's, it's pretty important to be aware of this stuff in a world where to stand out with our photos, we really have to push ourselves and push ourselves. We have to be really good. We have to do something unique and you don't get that anymore by just cranking a saturation slider up, cranking 
clarity slider up. When those things first came out, they were trending. You could almost win photo awards just by overusing them. That kind of stuff doesn't last. And I do prefer techniques that withstand the test of time and that are going to make iconic, iconic images. With that, Let's wrap up. We've covered a lot of things, and I know our news today kind of rolled into our main topic because I made a lot of connections today, and I hope I didn't ramble too much and it makes sense. I hope you guys will send me an email, profotoshow at gmail.com. Let me know what you think. And you know what? I do have a pick of the week. I do have a pick of the week, and it's actually the Dino Label Maker 160. Um, this is a little handheld label maker. And these things are really useful. So it's not a photo tool per se, but this is something that you will definitely get a use out of because for, for labeling gear and things like that, um, it's just good. The rolls of tape for it are not terribly expensive. It's just a little simple screen, and then you put a roll of tape in it, and you can print out labels, just ribbon style labels. And so it's it's very like low tech, not super low tech. It has a screen, it has buttons, menus, a little bit. But these things cost about 50 bucks. I'll put my a link to it in the show notes of my Amazon link if you guys want to check it out from there. And I do get a couple bucks from it. But regardless of where you pick this up, whether it's in your local office store or something like that, I actually have an old one that I bought. Gosh, I've probably had this for 10 years now. And it's an old Epson label maker the LW400. This thing is phenomenal. It's actually better because it has a backlit screen. It's bigger. It has more more keys on the QWERTY keyboard that you don't have to do modifier keys and shift and things like that. Uh, and, and so even though it's an older, I would arguably say it's a better label printer. The results come out equal in terms of the quality. I would say it's better in the sense that it's you can do a little bit more with it easier. But the thing is, it's very it's not made anymore. So even if you get to use one, it's going to cost you more, and the rolls of tape cost more for it. Whereas the label maker, when you want some, when you get something like this, you don't want it to be expensive to use. Otherwise, you won't use it for labeling your gear, your boxes, things like that, your your cases. This label manager 160, the tape is pretty cheap, and you can get aftermarket tape really readily available for really cheap for it. So you don't have to buy the OEM stuff, and it works fine because it's at the end of the day. It's a label, like it's a thermal label that it's printing. But I found this to be very useful, and that is my pick of the week for this week. It's not even a camera, not anything crazy or expensive, but it actually is very useful. And you guys check it out, or check out another brand similar, whatever you find, but in that category, the handheld runs on batteries. You can just quickly type it out, make a label. I use these things all the time. That Both the old Epson one I have, and we also have one of the the 160s. So check that out. I hope you guys enjoyed the show today and caught some nuggets of goodness as we covered all of these things in today's show. As always, I will be putting the links to everything I talked about today in the show notes over at profotoshow.com or simefx.com forward slash podcast. They go to the same place. And I'll put links to some of these YouTube videos and things I mentioned as well, like for the F-curve, the video on HDR. There's also a recent video I did over there on, on not using expensive photo lights. You don't need them. Even using a flashlight can give you amazing results. And I show examples in this video. And you might want to check that out as well. I think you'll find it pretty cool. 
I'll put a link to the video on the Lightroom Classic versus Cloud versus Mobile. But of course, if you go over to my channel, you can find lots of videos on all these things and just browse through or search or just subscribe and hit the bell icon so you can stay up to date for new ones. Uh, and also we'll be doing the podcast live at times as well. So make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell icon if you want to get notified for future podcasts. We will see you guys on the next show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your, your support, your emails, and to those of you that uh, support my ongoing experiments and research and projects and the podcast by using uh, the products over at simefx.com, the presets, the actions, the workshops, all of that good stuff. I appreciate you guys, and I appreciate being here to give you guys the customer support you need just to make your life in photography better. That's all for today. We will see you on the next one.